The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for July 16, 2022. This week, President Biden traveled to Saudi Arabia to meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman. Biden's trip signals a shift from his 2020 campaign promise to make Saudi Arabia a, quote, pariah in retaliation for the Saudi-backed murder of dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Biden's visit to the country is reportedly to press for additional oil production, mitigate Chinese influence, and advocate for stronger relations with Israel. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from April 2019. In the episode, four former Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffers, Jody Herman, Jamil Jaffer, Dana Struhl, and Lester Munson, discuss the U.S.-Saudi alliance and Yemen. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 9th, 2019. Our friends at the National Security Institute at George Mason University came over last week to have a discussion in our podcast studio about Yemen and the U.S.-Saudi alliance. They're thinking of starting their own national security-oriented podcast, so we figured we'd let them take a turn on ours to try out the fun. Four former Senate Foreign Relations Committee staffers who worked with and sometimes at odds with each other participated. The conversation was moderated by Lester Munson, former staff director of the committee under Chairman Bob Corker. It included Jody Herman, former staff director of the committee under ranking member Ben Cardin, Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to Bob Corker. It also included Dana Struhl, former Middle East Democratic staffer on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It's a good conversation, combative, informative, and diverse. And it's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 407, an NSI conversation on Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and U.S. policy. Moments ago, the U.S. House of Representatives passed SJ Res 7, with all Democrats and 16 Republicans voting aye. This resolution would halt U.S. participation in the Yemen civil war, that is U.S. cooperation with the Saudi-UAE alliance that is fighting the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Frankly, this resolution is going to go to the president shortly. He will veto it. Congress is unlikely, highly unlikely, to override that veto. We're going to go deep into this resolution 
Congress's views of Saudi Arabia and Yemen. But first, we're going to start where this issue started, which is the country of Yemen and Yemen's civil war. Yemen's been at war since 2014. It's an incredibly complicated situation. There are factions within factions. The government forces are divided. The rebel forces are divided. It is a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen. Tens of thousands have been killed. Up to 20 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance from the international community. Outside forces are involved as proxies, are using the local forces as proxies. Saudi Arabia, UAE, the United States, Iran, others. It is a uh, fiasco of the first order. I'm going to throw our first question to Dana, who is, frankly, the most popular staffer that we ever worked with. Dana, can you level set for us the situation with the Yemen civil war? Give us the, the background on where we are and how serious of an issue this is for the United States. Well, thanks so much, Les. So first of all, I think taking a step back, what's actually going on in Yemen is several different layers of war. So one is certainly a civil war um, between different factions in Yemen. And, and let's not forget that Yemen wasn't always the unified country that it is today. There's been multiple different interventions and multiple different wars among different groups in Yemen for what the future of Yemen governance and power sharing should be. The current one is um, Houthi movement, which are um, Zaidi Shia, so a minority group within Yemen from the south who contested the rule of President Hadi uh, from the central government, who then was left running to Saudi Arabia, where he still currently lives, uh, which we call, including the United States, the legitimate government of Yemen. The Houthis control Sana'a, the capital, and a lot of Yemen right now. The Houthis are receiving support from Iran. President Hadi in exile is receiving support from the Saudi-led coalition that includes Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the United States recognizes President Hadi as the legitimate government and president of Yemen. Taking a step back from that, however, this is actually a proxy war. So the Saudis, the Saudi government, and most Gulf Arab governments view what's happening in Yemen and the Iran-Houthi relationship as the potential for the Houthis to become the next Hezbollah. So this would be instead of Lebanese Hezbollah on the border of Israel, this is Yemeni Hezbollah on the border of Saudi Arabia, except Yemen, where it is located strategically. Um, U.S. military, tons of the world's commerce go through these strategic waterways. Yemen also happens to have a serious counterterrorism problem. It's where al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has entrenched itself. Some of the most deadly, dangerous external attacks and plots have emanated from Yemen. So again, the United States has had a longtime interest in Yemen from the counterterrorism perspective. Now we have layered on top of that Iranian malign interference. They have been steadily increasing the lethality and sophistication of support that they're providing to the Houthi movement. And on top of all of that, the Yemeni population and society chronically underdeveloped. One of the most shocking statistics I've once heard is that Yemen is going to be the first country in the world to run out of water. Finally, at this point, because of the difficulty of accessing the populations within Yemen that are in need, you have the worst outbreak of cholera in the world's history happening today in Yemen. You have acute malnutrition. And for anyone who's watched images when Vice News or, or different groups go into Yemen, the starving babies, the level of starvation, suffering is just absolutely unacceptable. And, and what we are running into is a situation where generation after generation in Yemen is going to be set back. 
Jody, Jamil, let's let's get into the uh, kind of the geopolitics here and U.S. policy towards Yemen. The civil war started in 2014. U.S. participation with Saudi and UAE began under the Obama administration, towards the end of the Obama administration of, of his second term. At the same time, the U.S. was busily negotiating the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. There were huge forces involved for the U.S. in the Middle East. Big issues were at stake. The president had staked his reputation to this Iranian nuclear deal. Jody, we'll kick it to you first. Talk about the Obama administration's approach to this war, the fact that it decided to participate in the civil war seems a little bit counterintuitive now. What was kind of the logic originally for their involvement? Right. So, you know, we're sitting in a different moment now than we were than we were four years ago, uh, as you point out. So we were in the middle of negotiations with Iran over what became the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which was intended to limit Iran's uh, Iran's nuclear program. Right. There's a big regional com- power component here between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Everybody, of course, being concerned about uh, Iran potentially becoming a nuclear weapons state, but maybe nobody more so than Saudi Arabia. Right. As the other regional heavyweight in, in the Gulf region. So, you know, as things began to worsen in Yemen, you know, the U.S., who you might have imagined under the Obama administration would be maybe less inclined to engage in, in this type of uh, military action, really was feeling a lot of pressure, partially because of the Iran nuclear deal, but also because they were concerned about counterterrorism in Iran and the integrity of the Saudi border, that they were more inclined to lean in than they might have been initially because of the politics of the region, but also the politics on Capitol Hill. The conversation on Capitol Hill at that point in time was partially about Iran's, but the Iranian nuclear deal. It was also a lot about Iran's regional activities from Syria to Lebanon, and, and then, of course, to Yemen. So the other conversation going on in Washington and, and certainly on Capitol Hill at the time was not just about how do we counter Iran nuclearly, but how do we counter Iran as a hegemonic, you know, an ambitious hegemonic power in the region. And the concern from Congress was the nuclear deal was only nuclear, right, and that there needed to be another component to this that was going to check Iran's aspirations. All right, let me push you on that a little bit because – it, you know, we were we were together uh, working side by side, sometimes as friends, sometimes as adversaries on these issues on Capitol Hill, along with Jamil and Dana. And it seemed on our side, I know our side was talking extensively about Iran's malign influence in the region and the fact that it was expanding its uh, that it was using the Iran so nuclear deal. So was Jody, to, to be fair, and Dana, right? Let's, but, I mean, let's just let's, call it what it is. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Bob Menendez, but, when they worked for him, and 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 you know, and and after you know, Mr. Menendez was out for a while, I mean, they were. They were there fighting on the same side about Iran's Iran's malign influence. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I just think that we're sitting at a different political moment now than we were four years ago. Let like, me let me put it to you this way. If the administration had not been negotiating the Iran nuclear deal at the time, would the Obama administration have decided to side with the Saudi alliance against the Houthis in Yemen? I think so. Oh, I don't agree. I so don't I'm going to just jump in here. So at the time, let's recall that Mohammed bin Salman had only recently become the deputy crown prince of the Saudi government, number one. And number two, not only was he the deputy crown prince, he was the minister of defense yeah. of he was the, the deputy, Saudi wiping government. Everybody else, and MBN out. he 
is and was at the time young and there was an assumption which i think exists among many today that he is going to be in positions of influence and perhaps a modernizer and the future king for jet for decades and decades and that we needed to find a way to work on our partnership with with the deputy crown prince and the minister of defense and the kind of support that the obama administration decided to provide to the saudi-led coalition was not decisive in terms of what the Saudi campaign was doing. In fact, it was actually designed to be quite limited to demonstrate support strategically without taking an active role, right? Right. This it is the was sort a, of the, the Obama move, right? Like and a, it, pin, yeah, a not, It's no, no, Goldi- a, it's bit, a Goldilocks, Goldilocks approach. Yeah, Goldi- not exactly. too much, right. not too little, but enough to be but, relevant to perhaps be- retain a Because after, after all, policy was to not do stupid stuff. That's right. Don't so we only, did, we only did no, smart no, no, stuff. But it also goes to, I mean, there was a real issue with integrity of the, uh, with the integrity of the Saudi border and with AQAP uh, in in, right. in the Yemeni, you know, in yeah. Yemeni and, territory. And, no, that's right. and to revisit the Houthi movement was launching when when Hattie and the and the previous President Saleh had been voted out of office or removed from office. There were Scud missiles and ballistic missiles in Yemen, and the Houthis were taught somehow how to use Magically, these m- missiles. Right. We're launching them into Saudi population centers. The border towns had to be cleared. Right. There was a legit. There were real threats that, if left unattended, and the kinds of support, limited intelligence, limited guidance, not active involvement by U.S. advisors in targeting. That was not the intent of the Obama administration. It was right. limited intelligence, specific suited for ballistic missiles. It was other things related to freedom of navigation. It was minimal support. And then this idea of providing arms to the Saudi government, not at all. The U.S. government for a long time has been selling weapons to the Saudi government, and this has been contentious across administrations and the Obama administration as well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all 
for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. Let's talk about what happened at the very end of the Obama administration in terms of the actual military policy towards Yemen. The Obama administration and the, had a military policy? Well, like they, the, there, was a, there, was a, there was a plan to do some cooperation with the alliance. That changed near the Opinion. end of the Obama administration. When the, it wasn't when, policy by tweet, Jamil. Uh, well, listen, I'm not, I'm not defending the current president. I'm just saying the Obama administration's policy, uh, foreign policy, was essentially do almost nothing, do as little as it possible, was, it was foreign whip policy. out when, when the opportunity presents itself. Let's just call it what it was. It was foreign policy by speech. And sometimes the speech was the only part of the policy that actually happened. But let's talk about the decisions they made at the end of the administration, which was to stop selling precision-guided weapons to the alliance. What, what was the rationale for that? How did that come about? What was the cause for that? What was the, the, the reason on the ground that the administration made that decision? So at the time that the administration made this decision, there were starting to be growing bipartisan expressions of concern from Congress. So both sides of the aisle, 
both the House and the Senate were starting to raise concerns not about the nature of the threat and the totality of U.S. support to the Saudi-led coalition, but the nature that the, the the manner in which the coalition was prosecuting its campaign against the Houthis. And in particular, there began to be a lot of reports about serious civilian casualties and destruction of civilian infrastructure. And there then emerged a question as to the intentionality of the coalition when the civilian casualty numbers were going so far up. And it clearly was coming from the air campaign and dominance of of the sky came from the Saudi-led coalition. So the question was, is the United States government selling precision guided munitions part of the problem or mitigating the problem. Well, and it. the previous administration and this the current administration have never been able to provide a compelling case as as it relates to civilian casualties and whether the Saudi-led coalition is actively taking steps to reduce civilian casualty numbers or whether it's actually a massive punish punish everybody, take out civilian infrastructure, punish the entire population, and then because of that, eventually they will expel the Houthis on their own. Well, right? well, so I think we need we kind of need to move this forward here, right? Yeah. So this is how we've landed at this moment at this moment right now, where you had a vote in the U.S. Senate, right, and just a vote in the U.S. House on SJ Res Seven. This is this resolution that basically says. Donald Trump, we think now is time to get out of Yemen, right? With bipartisan majorities. Bipartisan majorities in both houses, right, in both chambers. This is a highly unusual thing to happen. It's not that, you know, so this is going to move forward. It's going to land on the president's desk in the near term, and he almost certainly will veto it. But what is unusual about this resolution is that you had members on both sides of the aisle who are on board, and not just on board, but basically telling the president, we believe that this constitutes hostilities under under the War Powers Resolution. We have made this determination, and we are explicitly not giving you authority to be invested in this military action any longer, right? The War Powers Resolution, which has its own legal problems, but it requires affirmative action by Congress if the president wants to keep U.S. troops involved in hostilities for more than 60 days from the date of initial notice, right? We've obviously long since passed that Interval, date. And we've done that a lot. Fine, but the truth is that the war resolution actually requires an affirmative action by Congress. So as much as this isn't going to be vetoed and it will be legal, at the end of the day, like Congress has actually expressed exactly what the war powers resolution would suggest that they do, which is we're not only not giving you authorization, we're telling you to get the hell out. Oh, those are excellent points, Jody. And you know I always agree with you. But I also want to set the predicate for why the the vote today and the, and the previous vote in the Senate are not maybe not necessarily related to what's actually happening on the ground in Yemen. So I kind of I want to I don't want to jump too quickly to where we are right now. Let's let's do a little bit more work on on the lead up to this. Let's talk about the transition from Obama to Trump, President Trump clearly ratcheted up the U.S.-Saudi alliance when he, when he took office. He announced he wants to sell more weapons to back Saudi to Arabia. Back to where it's always been, to be clear. Back to where it's been historically for a long time. There's always been issues in the relationship. There was that September 11th issue. But okay. there, was, there was that thing. Yeah, I actually don't think this is so much of a, an Obama-Trump thing, so much as it is, as you suggest, Les, a real pivot in, in U.S.-Saudi relations based on events that have transpired, including Yemen, but a lot of other events Khashoggi. have transpired, not just Khashoggi, though. Don't, right? don't, that's foreshadowing. Don't, let's not jump too quickly to Khashoggi. I want to talk about all the Yemen stuff before we get to Khashoggi. Right, but it's only partially Yemen. I literally had to make myself a list of all of the reasons that this relationship is now in peril. 
right? So fire we, away. Go. Let's right, hear the so list. So we've got Khashoggi, of course, right? Uh, and Yemen. You've got Khashoggi in Yemen. You've got the kidnapping of the Le- you know things that just call into question the judgment uh, of Saudi Arabia, right? The kidnapping of the Lebanese prime House minister. House arrest. Fine. House arrest. This diplomatic breach with Canada over over tweets, right, that the Canadian foreign minister made about Saudi's arrests of activists, maybe maybe the hacking of Jeff Bezos's phone because of their coverage of Khashoggi. The crackdown on It's fine. Let's talk about the crackdown on dissidents and activists in Saudi Arabia, including that that there are ten women on trial in Saudi Arabia right now for their expressions of support for other women, their interest in driving, and their interest in in modernizing the kingdom, something that MBS has pledged that he would do. He is supposed to be the modernizer, and yet what we see in Saudi Arabia today is that you've got 10 women on trial for actions that are clearly All right, let's, 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 nothing but political. Let's stipulate there are huge differences in the values between Saudi Arabia and the United States, and that can drive a lot of criticism from our country towards Saudi Arabia, all legitimately so. Let's, but let's talk about interests as well, and maybe a little more kind of bottom line issue, which which Dana referenced earlier, which is 9-11, 15 of the 19 bombers were from Saudi Arabia. Hijackers. Hijackers. Murderers. Terrorists. Murderers, terrorists. Mass killers were from Saudi Arabia. That is still very much stuck in the mind of average Americans, of voters, of constituents. Congress ultimately responded just a few years ago by passing JASTA. President Obama vetoed it. What it does was JASTA his, I think, stand for, Les? The Justice Against State Sponsors of Terrorism, Sponsors of Terrorism Act. Act of 2016. So President Obama vetoed it. Congress overrode the veto. Dana, talk about Talk about the how that is kind of, for I think for a lot of Americans, the baseline issue between the United States and Saudi Arabia, that it's not necessarily human rights concerns or values. It is more about the fact that our country was offended by theirs. So I would take one step back from that, Les, and just say generally you have to keep in mind with the U.S.-Saudi relationship that, that the executive branch, the governments, Democratic and Republican, have long looked at the U.S.-Saudi relationship from, in, from its interests, whether it's counterterrorism, intelligence sharing, having a stable partner that you can rely on in, in the Middle East to help with other regional issues. Like, for example, we're talking to the Saudis or the Trump administration is talking to the Saudis about the Middle East peace process or about contributions for the humanitarian crisis in Syria, for all of these reasons. And energy, right? And energy, energy. right. Of course. Thank you. And substantial commercial and business interests. But the U.S.-Saudi relationship has never been popular with the American people. And it has always been difficult for any administration, Republican or Democratic, to define and defend why the executive branches remain committed to this relationship. Most Americans look at Saudis and they see terrorists. They don't understand the nature of the relationship. They are aware that women do not have equal rights with men. This perplexes them. And they don't necessarily understand all or or accept the interest-based argument because the value seems so contradictory to our own. Right. We might actually have a point of concurrence here, which is everybody sitting around this table actually understand that there's some strategic value to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. I kind Massive. Of- Right, fine. There's some strategic value to the U.S.-Saudi relationship, as distasteful as it may be from time to time. It's not that there's no value here, not to mention we also have to consider things like if not us, then China, or if not us, Russia. Russia. Right. Jamil, let me challenge you a little bit. 
Saudi's been the biggest oil producer in the world for decades. It's got massive reserves. They can single, single-handedly affect the price of a barrel of oil, which impacts our foreign policy, impacts our economy. Regular Americans notice the price of gas. That can be directly related to Saudi Arabia. That's changing. The U.S. is about to become the world's biggest energy producer. We're going to become an energy exporter. Saudi Arabia, not as important to us as it used to be. Is part of the reason the, the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi is changing, the fact that our energy resources are greater, we don't need Saudi the way we used to, and in fact, they're not as important to us strategically as they used to be. What are you saying? Of course. I mean, there's no question that as we become a net exporter of oil and or natural gas or petroleum products, it, our, our relationship with Saudi Arabia is going to be less necessary. That being said, it'll always be important. They're still going to be one of the world's largest producers of fossil fuel, and that ain't going away anytime soon. I mean, they'll still be able to affect the world price of oil. They're also a critically important player in a very unstable region, a region that matters a lot to us for, like, for largely the same reasons. Um, in a region that's volatile, a region from which attacks against the United States, catastrophic attacks, have emanated, um, and one where we want to keep our friends close and our enemies at bay. And yet, you know, we've seen at times attempts to pivot away from our, our historic allies towards potential new allies. That was a failure of the Obama administration, the pivot to Iran. That failed. And, uh, yeah, Jamil, and that's not a thing. It was There's, a thing. It of is it not was. a thing. Oh, come on, Jody. Right, You know my personal views on the Iran nuclear stand. deal. Like, I You're didn't think right it place. was the best deal ever, but I think it is a far cry from saying that the Obama administration made a pivot to Iran well, over Saudi Arabia. I think if you ask the Israelis or the Saudis or any of our longstanding allies in the region, they would disagree with you 100%. Let's ask it in a slightly different way, maybe one that's more conducive to a conversation. The Obama administration didn't do as well with our traditional allies, Israel and Saudi Arabia, and was engaged more with Iran. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And it seemed, it seemed to me- They were engaged in a negotiation we were, with it, Iran. It, that is not the same thing as making it a pivot to, not, to a country say, that oh, is an acknowledged state sponsor Let me get it all out. Don't, don't look at me like I said what Jamil said. I think you from, did. From where we were, from <laughs> we were, from we were sitting, it looked like the administration wanted to establish a concert of the Middle East and a balance of power between Iran and Saudi, or between the Shia and the Sunnis. Is that is that not in fact what the Obama administration was pursuing? Was empowering a more balanced approach to the Middle East, so that the U.S. could withdraw, so the U.S. didn't have to be there as the balancer anymore. If you bring up Iran a little bit and push down Saudi a little bit and you have some balance, the U.S. can come home. That's what President Obama campaigned on. I think we need to remember why we started having negotiations with Iran over its nuclear program. Iran was at a moment literally months away from reaching nuclear capability. Like there was a real threat on the table that precipitated those negotiations. It wasn't as if we stood back, looked at the world and said, yeah, I think Iran should be our good friend. No, Iran did something. They did something wrong, right? Which is they accelerated their nuclear program to, to a point and clandestinely that they were coming close to a point of becoming the next nuclear power. They had almost reached nuclear capability and were literally within weeks to months of reaching that point. That is what precipitated the negotiations. So it's not, it wasn't about the hundred other things that Iran does wrong, which they do uh, domestically and within the region. It really was about their nuclear program, right? This is why we negotiated. That, that's really the entirety of it. To suggest that it's something more than that, I think is just not accurate. Well but, well, but Jody, but there's more than that, right? I mean, the reason that we were even in a position to negotiate with Iran and the reason they came to the table was we found out about their nuclear program, right? We caught them red-handed. 
right? The sanctions that you helped put in place, right? And that put that put extreme pressure on Iran that forced them economically to the table, right? And then we gave away that we gave away the farm, right? We gave them a deal that you know that that a Russian Olympic athlete would have liked, right? Um, with with provisions that would have allowed them to essentially get away with another nuclear program right under our noses, right under the nose of the international community. So it wasn't a good deal. It was a deal designed to you know to to change our strategic position in the Middle East, bring into play this sort of concert move that I think Les was talking about. And at the end of the day, you know, I, it, it's hard for me to believe that, that you're really going to defend the sort of abandoning of our traditional allies, our inability to so actually do So it sounds to me like all you want to do is bring this back to like bickering about the Obama administration no, no, no. rather than recognizing no. the moment that we're sitting in presently right. where Barack Obama, most people would be pretty happy to have Barack Obama well, be president right now, right? Like, so this isn't about Barack Obama. It's not even actually about fair. Donald Trump. It's about it's about what Saudi has done and the situation, you know, in Yemen and and kind of our increasingly feeling of concern about MBS and who this person is who could be sitting on the throne in the kingdom for the next All right, 50 let's, years. Let's let's jump to the predicate here, which is the fact that the U.S. Congress has now, in both the House and the Senate, openly defied the president's policy towards Saudi Arabia, wants to pull the U.S. back from the war in Yemen. Is the reason for that congressional action actually Saudi Arabia itself, the Saudi role in Yemen, the U.S. participation in the alliance? Is it directly related to that? Or is it, in fact, really the thing that pushed it over the top, something completely different, which is the fact that Saudi Arabia appears, for all intents and purposes, to have murdered appears a Washington Post columnist named Jamal murdered. Khashoggi. Just call it what it is, right? They murdered him, right? There's no right. appears. Are you going to answer the question, or do you want one of us to, Jamal? Answer the question. You answer it. I think less. It's all of the above. I think that first of all, we're at a moment in time where there is questioning of the trajectory of the executive's execution of foreign policy and whether the kinds of U.S. support provided to the Saudi coalition are actually reinforcing of U.S. security interests, number one. There is a view shared bipartisan that the kind of U.S. support and the prosecution of the Saudi-led coalition's war in Yemen are actually exacerbating the conditions and threats that we care about, whether it's providing more space to al-Qaeda, whether it's actually exacerbating and opening more inroads for Iran to continue to interfere, whether it's setting the groundwork for a humanitarian, well, it already is a humanitarian crisis that could spill over in really dangerous ways. All of that. But in addition, I think the manner in which the current administration has embraced the now crown prince has said we're not going to judge or publicly publicly critique anything about the manner of, of the military campaign in Yemen. And we're going to continue not just status quo provision of U.S. support. We're actually going to look for ways to increase it. All of that combined with the list that Jody started to run down of reasons why members of Congress are now seeing the U.S.-Saudi relationship not as stabilizing but destabilizing, and in particular the Saudi government. So to add to her list, there was the Qatar blockade, which is tearing apart the fabric of the Gulf Cooperation Council, which we've seen as really important for our multilateral security interests. So we talked about human rights. We talked about what happened with the prime minister of Lebanon. There are a lot of issues on the table here. And if you look at that laundry list in the last two years, and then you look at the whatever you want to criticize for the previous administration, I think there's plenty of criticism on the current administration, which is 
if in fact the manner of the Saudi conduct of foreign policy and its role in the region is now destabilizing, what is this administration doing to use any of the leverage it has on its table to right-size that relationship? And in the absence of any sense that the Trump administration is doing that, you have Congress stepping in. And it's not just about Saudi Arabia and Yemen, although that's what we're talking about today. You see Congress doing this on issue after issue. If you want to talk about turning back on traditional partners, certainly there's plenty of criticism and concern to go around that you hear from both sides of the aisle when it relates to the current administration. Oh, no question. And again, no question. that is why you have Congress again and again seeking to re not only assert itself, but at times when it has been deferential to the conduct of the executive, at this point stepping in even more actively out of really serious and heightened concern about the right. current administration. There was, there was that time a few months ago where it looked like we were going to go to war with Canada. So talk right. about a traditional ally. So Jody, let me give let me open the door wide open for you and let's and let's talk about the current administration. If the Trump administration had actually pursued a more fair evaluation of and reaction to the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, if it had talked about what really happened and made people come to account for it, if that had actually happened, which I don't think it has at all, do you think Congress would still be doing the things that it did today and a couple of weeks ago where it's acting to pull the U.S. out of the war in Yemen? Right. So I think, you know, Khashoggi is part of this puzzle. As Dana laid out, there's a litany of things that Congress is reacting to. Khashoggi is either the inflection point, the straw that broke the camel's back, the bridge too far, whatever you want to call it. Like Khashoggi was was really the trigger for what has followed, but it was it was one on a, on a list of things, although amongst them, like the, the worst of them, if you will. But it's not really not just about that, right? It's also about the war in Yemen. And as Dana suggested, whether or not the situation on the ground in Yemen is actually making our strategic situation a little bit worse, both in terms of providing space to AQAP, but maybe also in giving Iran a little bit of additional reach uh, into the Gulf region as well that they might not have had but for the execution of the war in Yemen. So I think you see Congress reacting to all of these things and at the same time recognizing Saudi's kind of the strategic relationship we've had with Saudi, looking for a way to put that back put that back in place and trying to send messages to Riyadh about the necessity of them addressing these issues, right? So that might be, it looks like we may have an ambassador in Riyadh pretty soon, trying not to execute U.S. policy from Washington, but to actually have an ambassador in the region who's working on this uh, on a day-to-day basis would be useful. Uh, And somebody who can translate for the kingdom the feelings in Washington right now, and with respect to Khashoggi specifically, the need for them to come clean, if you will, and to acknowledge more than they have presently the very active role of the leadership in the kingdom in Khashoggi's murder. Congress clearly isn't satisfied on this issue on a bipartisan basis. You know, there were a few sanctions, global Magnitsky sanctions that, that took effect, you know, shortly after the, the, the facts of his murder came out but rather rather insufficiently, and I really don't think that Congress is done with that. And lastly, I would add the issue we haven't talked about, even though this resolution on Yemen is going to be vetoed, like this whole issue of Saudi Arabia, both Yemen and how to manage or how what the repercussions of the Khashoggi murder are, are going to play out in the 2020 defense authorization bill, unquestionably. Jamil. Well, look, I mean, I think the, the, the real challenge here is that we have never really figured out the way we want this relationship to go, right? And uh, for all the reasons that Jody and Dana have just laid out, you know, the Saudis, we're not in a good place with the Saudis. That being said, 
right? This idea somehow that Congress really all of a sudden got so interested in the humanitarian situation in Yemen. And, you know, look, it's, it's a, it's a ca- catastrophe of, of, of the highest magnitude, but they haven't cared for years. They haven't cared about. I don't think that's true at all. There have I been mean, actions in the I Congress. Mean, well, Chris there's, Murphy, there's been, they've right? Cared. Senator oh, Chris, Chris Murphy has been anything. active on this issue yes. really since the beginning yes. of the since the beginning Fine. of the war, I, and he's not the only one. The difference is now he's brought he's brought a coalition with him at this point. Well, right, but that coalition is a coalition of people who a are mad about Khashoggi, people who are, who don't want the U.S. to be in any conflicts overseas. By the way, which sort of largely includes the president of the United States, right? People who want to let other people solve the problems in the Middle East, right? Get us out of that region. Let let Allah sort it out as the line goes, right? And so a, I just don't think that's true. So if you want to look at Senator crisis. Menendez, right, has new legislation. I think Dana can speak a little bit to the content because she was still there when it was coming together. But the co-sponsors of that bill are, are not a bunch of leftists, right? You've got Menendez on this bill. You've got Lindsey Graham on this bill. Where's, you know, where's the chairman Reed, of the committee? Young, Gene Shaheen, these are people who have strong national security backgrounds and are realistic, realistic in their foreign policy perspectives. Here's the difference between the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and humanitarian crises all over the world is in this one, regardless of we can debate and Congress is actively debating the nature of the U.S. role, whether it constitutes official entrance of U.S. forces into hostilities, which is what the actual text of the resolution is about. But you cannot deny that the United States is playing a clear role, has a clear role in the Saudi-led coalition, whatever it's providing, intelligence, selling weapons, minimal support, et cetera. And don't forget, we have a decades-long military-to-military relationship where we have been working to build the partner capacity of the Saudi military. And these are partner governments who have actively intervened or actively responded to a situation in Yemen. And since that intervention, the humanitarian crisis has gotten worse. So what is different is that the United States is actually playing an active role and members of Congress are looking at and say, what is our responsibility? What is our liability? Are we culpable? And what and and that is what is actively being. So when you compare it to all the world's humanitarian crises where members of Congress don't care, there is a clear difference between this one and other ones. And that is why they're actively debating it. That's fair. But it's a war we didn't start. Right. To be clear, we were working with the Saleh government, with the Hadi government to put down a QAP, right? And it was the Iranians that came in and started arming the Houthis, right? And starting a, a revolution in that country. So, so we didn't bring this war to Yemen. I just want to push back on you. You're we right. We didn't bring this war to Yemen. I also, just like the same arguments we were having during the Arab Spring, the Iranians did not bring this war to Yemen. There have been, I think, uh, Yemen experts are going to criticize me on this, but but somewhere between three and six wars between the Houthis and the government, yes. between the Houthis and, and the and Saudis South, yeah, that's right. for that's a right. very long time. Fair. And Iran was not playing an active role. So a lot of this, stoking, I think fueling, there's a clear difference arming. between fueling the original intent of the Houthis to come on into Sana'a and force out the Hadi government and what Iran is doing now, which is taking advantage of a group of rebels that are willing to accept the kind of advice and, and sophisticated weapons and training it's that just, the Iranians it's are It's really just too simple to suggest that the two Shia populations are really identical. And I know Dana has, like, background and history on this, right? But just because you've got well, Shias Shia in Iran— too, so I, right, I know but a just bit you have Shia, Fine, you might. Just because you have Shias in Iran, right, and, and Houthi Shias doesn't mean that they're automatically aligned. No, no, agreed 100 percent. But when it comes to going up against the Saudis— they certainly have a have a joint interest, right? And Saudi a Saudi client in the former government of Yemen or the exit current. exit question, and I oh want boy. each each of you to answer. 
Wrong. If the Saudi government had not killed Jamal Khashoggi six months ago, would we be in the position where we are today, where, con where both houses of Congress have voted to overturn the president's policy in Yemen? Yes or no? Jody? Yes. Jamil? Absolutely not. Dana? I'm on the fence. I think I'm not. Ugh, no, I don't think so. Yes. I vote no. All right. Jody! It's, it's three to one no. Jody, you're very brave. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't done so already, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a rating and review on whatever podcast distribution system you found us on. You can also now purchase Lawfare swag at our online store, and you know you should. www.thelawfarestore.com you can also contribute to Lawfare on our support page. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. And our music is performed as ever by the one, the only, Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.